Welcome to the Readings Podcast. I'm Chris Gordon and I work in the events and programming at Readings. And today I'm speaking to two quite wonderful people here at the Readings State Library of Victoria shop. It's such a pleasure to be here to be surrounded by books. Uh, Today we are going to be talking about lyrical prose, we're going to be talking about poetry, we're going to be talking about writing and how we can be our most honest self. I've got Andy Jackson who writes about bodily differences and lives far, far away in the sweet old north skirt of the north in Castle Maine. He has performed at dozens and dozens of festivals and events. He's been published in a variety of print and online journals. He's been awarded grants. Uh, He's been given mentorships. He's done residencies. In fact, Andy, what haven't you done? Um, There's a long list and (laughs) I... I could name them, but I think it's unpredictable because I'm probably about to do them, perhaps. That is a fantastic answer, and I'm happy with that. Uh, We are going to be talking primarily about your latest collection of poems, Music Our Bodies Can't Hold. Uh, It's already doing very, very well for poetry, I say. I'm, I'm always surprised. I keep hearing of people who say they've read the book and I have no idea who they are. I know that's probably <laughs> quite common for prose writers, but for poetry authors, it's kind of a surprise because we normally just sell at readings. Yeah, well, at events. I was going to say, it's, we also sell at readings. You the do bookshop. always. Yes. We do. We always make sure we have your books here. Yes. Yeah, 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 we yeah, do. Yeah. Uh, Andy and I are joined with Dr. Lee Kaufman, who's a Russian born Israeli Australian, author of five books editor of two anthologies. She's a writing teacher. She does writings in different teaching in universities, in sort of festivals, uh, events across the whole of the state, it seems. She's about to fly to New York to do more and more talking, I guess. Uh, We are talking about one of her sort of second last book, Imperfect, Imperfect, which is a work of creative nonfiction. Lee, welcome to Readings at the State Library of Victoria. Thank you so much for having me and Andy today. (laughs) So, we had been wanting to talk to you two about your books and I've been really interested about this sort of, perhaps, I don't know, an an increase in sort of this type of, uh, new type of kiss and tell writing, if you like, where we talk about... uh, how we view our own bodies and the sort of perceptions of that other people have of them. Do you think, Lee, that your book, which has hit great sort of acclaim, both as a topic of conversation but also as a literary work, do you think that your work would have been published 10 years ago? Um, yeah, that's a very interesting question. Um, I think... Yeah, it's, uh, to be honest, it's really hard for me to say whether it would be would have been published, but I can tell you confidently that I would not have <laughs> written it <laughs> ten years ago. Because <laughs> up until I was so, <laughs> I was so sort of, um, I'm ashamed to say, ashamed of uh, the fact that I have so many scars that um, I've actually sort of danced around this topic for many, many years. And in fact, my first novel was surprise, surprise, called Scars. <laughs> I published it at twenty, and it was a terrible novel. I shouldn't have written it. <laughs> Even my publisher said it reads like a diary. (laughs) 
but um, I yeah, it's been sort of like really, really long time coming because I always write about stuff that I feel uncomfortable. Unfortunately for me, I sort of followed the advice of God, God on leash, who said make it hot for, uh, hot for yourself when you write. But uh, yeah, so it wouldn't have been written ten years ago. <laughs> What about you, Andy? Do you think that your poetry collection would have been published 10 years ago or do you think that we're, as a society, sort of changing? It's it's curious. Like, I actually think all the stuff that we're talking about has been an issue and people on people's minds for, you know, years, decades, probably centuries on some level. The beginning of time. Yeah, this uh, problem about... Uh, when they're all the same and yet we have all things in common. Um, but I do think there's something about, you know, the last few years that there is more of a, I don't know, it just feels a, the environment is different on some level. Uh, do yeah. you think that we are, as a society, more open to a whole range of people or do you think that we're all just playing some terrible game? I think we're we're not more open than we used to be, but I think we're more aware of the fact that we're not. Like, I think it's like, I mean, it's maybe parallel to stuff about um, misogyny where, you know, we, we have progressed and yet we kind of haven't. Like, we're really still struggling with how do we, yeah, how do we make the culture big enough for people who aren't, uh, you know, yeah, quite unquite normal. Yeah. yeah, So just, Andy, just while I've got you, can you tell us a little bit about this poetry collection and why it was important that you publish such a thing now? Yeah, look, um, most of my poetry before was autobiographical and I have a genetic condition called Marfan syndrome. And so what I, I came to this idea that I wanted to write biographical poetry And I wanted to write, have each poem in the book, a separate portrait of somebody else with the same condition. And so I went back to history and found people who were, you know, arguably may have had the condition. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, Paganini, uh, Mary, Queen of Scots, apparently. A whole lot of historical figures, but also I interviewed people and sort of told their life story in poems. So partly it was, you know, just an exploration of, I guess, something like empathy or solidarity or something, just feeling like these are my people and wanting to connect with them. But it was also kind of sneakily a way to raise the profile of the condition because it's um, relatively obscure and I think it's important that people know a bit more about what it is and, yeah. You know, you can be a spokesperson for me any old time, Eddie. It's very articulate and gorgeous. Lee, can you tell me about why, you, about, a little bit about your work and why now? Yeah. So, I um, one of, I guess I just want to say quickly that one of the reasons I was so ashamed all the time is because I've never actually seen um, women and not many men actually around me with scars. And, you know, like you were saying, and you wanted to raise the profile of your condition. And it's interesting because Marfan syndrome is a rare condition, as uh, I found out <laughs> recently when I was interviewing you for my book. Um, but um, scars are really common. My, when I did my PhD about women with non-facial scars, I looked at statistics. But you don't see them around. And I've never actually seen anybody around me because, uh, because people seem to sort of cover themselves. So I grew, grew up covering as well. 
and it became also verbal covering. But um, Wait, so you got the scars from a, an accident, or so I've got a, a from two separate things that happened to me as a child. My two, as I say, childhood misfortunes. <laughs> I was laugh because it sounds so contrived, but I had a, I was born with um, defective heart, so I had um, heart surgery more than sort of some other procedures around that. And then because it was in the Soviet Union in the 70s and 80s, that I was quite bored <laughs> by the doctors. And then I had uh, two years after I recovered from um, heart surgery, um, I just crossed the road I was 10 years old and a bus hit me <laughs> so, it was it was still in the Soviet Union and can, it you, makes, can you say that without <laughs> laughing please it, it, it makes it very tough for Andy yeah. but, uh, yeah, but, but you are very welcome <laughs> <laughs> I don't mind at all <laughs> because because when I wrote that's what I said before like when I was fictionalizing that's right <laughs> when I was fictionalizing my, my life story in the, that uh, novel scars not wanting to admit it was me the editor said to me the story is contrived it couldn't have happened <laughs> that's why I'm laughing <laughs> but yeah so I was I was really sort of for years feeling like I was almost like inhuman because I didn't see anybody around me it was this really strong sensation but um, three and a half years ago I gave birth to a child to my second son and he was diagnosed three months later with albinism and then I thought well it's enough it's, it's time time came that I actually did something about writing about bodily difference because and especially with Oli unlike myself won't be able um, to cover his um, difference as, as I choose to cover in fact I mean um, so I just wanted sort of to, at this stage already, when he was born, I decided I wanted to look at not just my people like so-called like me, although who is like me, but I also to sort of branch further and just look at what, how appearance can um, affect our lives. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think that what you're doing, both of you, is quite incredible. But I wondered uh, what has been the reaction to some of your works and have you been told, and what do you think about this, that you're inspirational? Uh, uh, do we use that phrase way too much? It's um, it's sort of like the I word on some level for uh, mm. within the disability community. It's certainly you know mm. not it's, not acceptable. It's terrible. Um, so it's the problem of, often with the idea of inspirational is that almost like we have a cape on and we're kind of flying off to our next superhero adventure um, when in fact. Most of us are kind of just living our lives and struggling, maybe even suffering or just getting on with things. And so people can look at that from outside and think, wow, that you're doing so well. You know, I've had people, uh, yeah, say, great to see you out and about. I'm like, oh, it's really not that difficult. <laughs> <laughs> but so that's kind of the official line. And I agree with that. And on the other hand, we, we do get um, some kind of resources from other people and observing other people. And if you do know people, um, I, won't, I don't want to say overcoming, but you know, if you do see people getting on with things in spite of the difficulties and the uh, struggles and the kind of things that are put up in front of them, then that can be useful for you. Like, uh, I don't, I don't know if I would say the word inspirational because it's got a kind of magic aura to it. When it's much more gritty and down to earth and kind of, it's just how it is. And yeah, there are people who who I, I guess, are kind of mentors or 
you know, people that you sort of go, oh, that's impressive. I want to, yeah. So, you know, I, I, in my book anyway, there's just a whole range of people. Some of the people I, that are in there, I think, are kind of like people I would like to model myself on and others I just kind of don't like at all. So, <laughs> you know, that's the nature of people. We're diverse and, yeah. yeah, so you can have a bodily difference and you can be really just an average everyday person as well. <laughs> Quite a good writer though. Quite a good writer. Lee, what about you? I mean, because I know I've seen some reviews where your book has been told that it's sort of inspirational and how does that how does that make you feel? I mean, it seems, I can't as Andy says, it's like a word that's Yeah, that's overused. an interesting. I can't remember um, the word inspirational in the reviews of my book, but I did have a recurring sort of um, word which meant a lot to me. And you mentioned this word before, um, Andy, in a different context, but empathy. When you were writing, you sort of were looking for empathy, and I did have sort of that. Uh, and that felt really good because my book is really... Even if I wanted it to be, it can't be inspirational because <laughs> I actually wrote it kind of almost in in response to against a lot of inspirational narratives around me because for year, like for years I was sort of looking at body at books about body image and about body positivity and although I, I appreciate the messages love yourself accept yourself uh, there's a lot of that isn't yeah, there there's yeah. a lot of those yeah. messages nowadays absolutely yeah. and although I, I appreciate and I know it helps to some people but I also know it to means many other people I spoke to it's not necessarily always useful because it almost like creates yet another pressure on one hand there's the pressure to look normal to appear normal mm-hmm. and or for women especially to appear beautiful so more than normal but on the other hand there's this pressure also to not show as if your body matters to you and to but you know and to to have this like amazing self-acceptance and I for me it wasn't useful for me actually what I found really useful and that's sort of what I talk about in the book is that I when I told myself it's okay actually to grieve it's okay to feel to, f- to have these thoughts that I often have, what I, well, not so often now, but I used to as a young woman particularly, what if I didn't have my scars? How would my life have been different? As soon as I sort of gave myself this permission to grieve, I paradoxically felt better. And so I really, uh, so I don't think my book, you can think of it as inspiration, or may, but, but may, I don't know if it will help, but I did have sort of peop- reviews and people responses that, who said that it was really useful for them too, to sort of um, lessen this this pressure of, of so it's almost like having this bravado you know so you don't have to necessarily have that bravado all the time I love that both of you are using this word empathetic quite a lot and as this perhaps is sort of a theme where it's about uh, knowledge and it's about sharing is that what you set out to do when you started your poetry I mean I know that you said that you were going to be to draw attention to it, that you were going to to this condition, that you were going to widen your circle so that you weren't the only person in the focus. And but did you set out to say, okay, in this way my poetry can be useful? Yeah, I sort of, yeah. Like um I think back to the actual writing of the poems, they are very much about some point of connection with the person I'm writing about, because I feel like there's no way I could just write an objective journalistic thing I had to kind of find something about each person that I thought oh yeah I, 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 kind I know of that know part something or about that and then go into the areas that I don't know about and include that as well so for me it really felt like I wanted to have a point of empathy with the person I'm writing about 
and a sense of uh, unknowing as well. And I, I kind of feel like that's what poetry does yeah. when people read it, that they connect with the voice in the poem, but they also kind of have a sense of, oh, I, I don't know about that. This is some kind of uncertainty or gap that they're exploring. Yeah. And that's what I find kind of pleasurable where, you know, it's both those things together. Is there, Andy, is there other poets that have taken a similar sort of journey? Another terrible word, journey, sorry. <laughs> oh, honestly. But it, Language take it, is a problem, <laughs> isn't it? It's a problem. <laughs> we need to get rid of it. Yeah. <laughs> but is there anyone that did, was there someone that you found that was, had yeah. taken a similar trek? Look, I, on one level, I, I was talking about this the other day on a panel at the Emerging Writers Festival about disability poetics. And I was talking with a young uh, writer, Robin Eames, who's just emerging now. And I realised that she entered into this world and was very aware that there were so many other writers of the body around her. Yeah. But for me, when I started writing in the kind of 90s, I wasn't really aware of anybody. Yeah. So that was part of the energy to do it because it felt like no one else is doing this and I had to do it because yeah. it's just for my own sake I had to do it. Um, yeah, so it was, it was new. But there were certainly poets that I, was, I loved and was really kind of shaped by. So, yeah. so who are your favourite poets? Oh, okay. I think I, I have a three three poets that have shaped me in the early years and that I still look back on and still appreciate now. So, surprise, surprise, Sylvia Plath, uh, Adrian Rich mm. as well, and a lesser-known American poet called Gregory Orr, uh, who kind of writes, I guess it's confessional, but it's also kind of surreal as well and imagistic, which I quite like. So, and there's dozens and dozens and dozens of... Oh others but those are the key for me in terms of who's shaped me yeah and not just because of the topics i'm i'm going to but because of the pace and because of the 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 rawness of it all or probably the bringing together of the personal and the political Mm. really Mm. and it being a, a sense that something really important is at stake and that they're putting themselves on the line it's not just an abstract kind of play it's it's important yeah so Lee I imagine the same sort of thing has happened to you as well in that uh, you know you've been trying to tell this sort of story because you needed to fill in the gaps in some ways and was there writers that you felt like that had walked a sort of a similar path or do you do you feel like I mean I imagine at 20 you felt like you were the bravest person in the world and and you were but but now that you've got this and you've got all these years of sort of writing under your sleeve, are you still feeling like that? Are you still feeling like that this book, Imperfect, was filling something that wasn't there? Um, there were actually two books that were really, really influential for me when I was uh, writing Imperfect that, that gave me sort of um, the kind of... Uh, well, I'll use the word inspiration now. <laughs> if we're talking about yeah, overused yeah. words, <laughs> but but it did really inspire me. So um, because they spoke about bodily appearance without euphemisms, and these were the companion memoirs. One is called Autobiography of a Face by actually a poet, Lucy Greeley. Have you read your work, Andy? No, no I've I've heard of it, yeah, yeah. but I haven't read it. 
Okay, so she, Lucy Gurley, she was sort of began as a poet, but she, she had um, um, uh, cancer of her jaw uh, in her childhood, and so her face was um, basically uh, shaped differently by surgeries. And she wrote this wonderful, wonderful book, which really sort of, um, it wasn't a book about saying something like, oh, well, um, everything is wonderful and, you know, and it, it wasn't like a very clear-cut, happy ending kind of story. It was very real. It was very genuine. There was a lot of uh, joy in it and exuberance. And there was a lot of pain. And that's the kind of story I wanted to read. Um, and then um, she died quite young. And um, her best friend, Anne Patchett, who is a very, you probably know of her, uh, both of you, um, Chris and Andy, she's an American novelist. She wrote this wonderful memoir called Truth and Beauty, where she, once again, it was like a sort of love song to Lucy Greeley and her struggle with her appearance. And, you know, uh, it was so, and again, it was so honest. And one of the things that both of them sort of said, but Anne said, says it very more explicitly in her memoir, she said something like, um, uh, well, everybody can, can tell, um, could tell Lucy that she is beautiful the way she is and that she and she's very loved and that everything is okay but uh, when she goes like out and into the world and people gawk at her and stare at her and uh, you know it's it's very easy for us to say but what is it like for her when she goes out there in the world and how and, and she also says in her memoir well telling somebody that um, they're perfect as they are and doesn't necessarily make them feel this way so so I for me sort of these books were really uh, kind of my muses when I was writing imperfect and just one more thing that i just like quickly to add is that one of the really big reasons for me in writing imperfect was but i actually wanted to shift the the cultural conversation from talking about body image and how we feel about ourselves to actually moving to thinking about more how we judge others how we look at others how we think of difference because i think this is the key to real change for me rather than putting the responsibility back again to people who may look differently. Yeah, I think that's, um, yeah, it resonates with me a lot because I mean, I'm somebody whose body is shaped differently. So I have quite very noticeable spinal curvature. So, and Lee's totally right. There is a sense where uh, people can say to you, you know, you're beautiful or that you're, you're fine, but and you do, that actually is powerful to have acceptance and love from other people. But um, if the broader culture doesn't change, you just continually sort of batting your head against that wall because every time you go outside, you're looked at quite differently. So you're having to face that again. So I think you're right. I think uh, my poetry, I think your book, Lee's, is this sense of it's not about you should accept yourself. It's more about this sense of uh, trying to, in oh, I was going to say, here's another great word, interrogate. <laughs> <laughs> We're trying to interrogate. Why is it that we treat people so differently? You know, why is it that we stare at people? Why is it, that, or why is it that we turn away? Or, yeah. you know, why is it a big deal? Uh, yeah, and it's, it, it's treading that sort of fine line, which I think is, much more useful and helpful than just kind of sort of get over it. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Do you know that we have just been talking so much that now we're towards the, the very last question. 
Uh, so given everything that you've been saying over the last half hour or so, given that we have, uh, in our own way, mocked some words, uh, some plot, where we, and we have looked at the, these works, your two works, that are looking outwards rather than inwards, in a way which I think is just quite extraordinary reading. Can you tell me, Lee, can you tell me what you are reading now, knowing that, of course, Andy and I will not judge you? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it it depends how you feel about psychoanalysis. (laughs) Speaking of internal inquiry. (laughs) For a long time, I've had a really interesting relationship with psychoanalysis because I'm I'm extremely interested in it, but on the other hand, I'm extremely also repelled by many of these ideas. So I've just been sort of uh, reading quite a bit about it lately. So I just finished um, Winnicott's uh, book, Plain Reality, where he sort of outlines his, yeah, his sort of, uh, yeah, you know, the his sort of ideas about therapy, the um, transitional objects. And now to follow it up, because I, I kind of... <laughs> <laughs> Something light and breezy. <laughs> no, so, I'm so sorry to disappoint you. <laughs> well, it's a bit lighter, it's a bit lighter. <laughs> now I'm reading... Um, Siri Hastert, her first ever novel, oh. the first novel, the, the, uh, yeah, which she wrote in the 90s, called Blindfold. But the thing about Siri Hastert, right, I'm sort of following up uh, Winnicott with her, is because she is deeply influenced by psychoanalytical thinking. It's my fourth book of her that I read. I really love her work. Um, but yeah, it's all steeped in this sort of thinking. And I'm just really interested now to see if some of Winnicott's ideas will pop up there. I can't follow that. All I can say, I did... Yeah, no, I won't even try to follow it. I have um, uh, on my bedside table a pile of about 12 books of poetry. So I'm always juggling through. I read... It takes me about probably months or a year to read a book of poetry. I just read them very slowly and I cycle through different ones. So I just finished reading uh, the debut collection by Amanda Joy, who's a Perth poet, and the book is called Snake-Like Charms, and every poem, I think, or most of the poems have a snake in it on some level. It's just a really, really very beautiful, very... Yes, exactly. You could psychoanalyze that. Very psychoanalytical. (laughs) (laughs) It's always a snake. But she does also go into the kind of, uh, you know... um, the snake is important to this land uh, in on many levels as well, um, and so it is very much. It, yeah, it's a symbol, but it's also very much a kind of real presence uh, as a figure. You know, so it's 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 a beautiful collection. She's great. I'm reading Ali Kobiekman's Inside My Mother at the moment, which is just such a stunning book. There's lots of great poetry. Australian poetry, I think, is really happening at the moment. So, yeah. Uh, it's been such a joy to talk to both of you today. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your contribution to the sort of cultural discussion that's happening at the moment, but also for just coming in and talking to Daggy Old Me in this beautiful bookshop. I so appreciate your time. Uh, Friends, that's all we've got time for, but you can, of course, download other podcast sessions uh, right here on the Readings website, and we look forward to you joining us again. Uh, Andy, Lee, 
I think both of you are completely and utterly aced. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. (laughs) You can stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast on our website, readings.com.au, where you'll find news, reviews and interviews and information on our current book, music and DVD releases. You can even sign up to our newsletter, The Readings Monthly. Thank you to Tom for recording this session and a special mention to that very same person, Tom Hoskins, for the fab introductory tune. Thank you so much for joining us.